Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. lost in the woods, you know that it can be a scary thing. As soon as you uh, realize that you are lost, the fear and the panic can start to set in. And especially if that sun begins to set, before you know it, you can lose all sense of direction because the fear and the panic take over, and you don't make rational decisions anymore. Okay, You quit thinking rationally, and you start uh, making things worse. Gavin, do we have a PowerPoint this morning? Um, thanks, brother. But when you have panic start to uh, take over, you, you don't make good decisions. A lot of survival guides, I mean, if you're lost, survival guides typically recommend a, a STOP protocol. It's called the STOP, S-T-O-P protocol. Um, kind of like this, this one you find on the U.S. Forest Service website or Boy Scouts. The first step you do when you realize that you're lost is you just stop, right? You might, you might not go anywhere at all if you can't come up with a plan. You just stop, you stay put so that you don't walk in circles while they're starting to look for you, right? And, or you just you stay calm, you stay put because here's what they said on the U.S. Forest website, panic is your greatest enemy. Take note of that, we'll, we'll come back to that. Panic is your greatest enemy. So you stop, you might sit down, you control your breathing, you get something to eat, you get something to drink, just calm down. And then you think, you go over in your mind how you got to where you are, right? What landmarks uh, should you be able to see? What landmarks have you seen? Don't move until you have a specific reason to take a step. And then third, you observe. Uh, you determine uh, the direction that you want to go, right? Uh, get, to get out the compass and determine which way is north, which way is south. And you, just, you don't just start walking off aimlessly, but fear will make you want to do that. Number four is to come up with some possible plans. Uh, based on your, your thinking and then on, on your observations, you come up with the best possible plan and then you act on it. And you try to maintain positive thinking as you're acting on it. Because, again, the fear, the panic want to take over. And uh, I'm going to make the point today that this, this STOP protocol uh, would have been really helpful, I think, for us the past few years. Not in the sense of getting lost in the woods, literally, uh, but just what we've found ourselves in lately. I mean, as you, you look around at the things going on in the world uh, with COVID and the economy and the culture that we're in, it's all been very disorienting, right? Disorienting. Have any of you felt that way? A little dizzy, a little lightheaded, a little, little fear, a little panic, like what in the world is going on? You feel a little lost in this world right now, don't you? Since COVID, the truth is we are living in a different world. We are living in a different America. I mean, the polarity in the worldviews was always there. It always existed. There was always left and right, but now there's an absolute polarity that is just incredibly defined these days, politically, morally, um, culturally. Foundational things are afoot in this country. You're living in a historic time, and it's going to play out one way or another. The COVID propaganda, historic, worldwide propaganda to shut down the entire world, except for maybe the Amish community, because they don't watch the news. 
the economy in the tanks, inflation, high gas prices, open borders, schools, pushing to indoctrinate uh, our children with communist Marxist critical race theory and LGBTQ propaganda, just completely wicked satanic stuff from the pit of hell. We're in a fight for the next generation. I'm shaking talking about it. Because that's how this, this is foundational, the, the battle that we are in right now. We don't realize how important this is right now, the fight for the next generation. For a Judeo-Christian to suggest that there is a reality is considered hate speech. That there is reality, there's absolute truth. Have you watched What is a Woman? That documentary? It's hate speech. To suggest there's a woman and there's a man. That there's only two genders. Men robbing women of their trophies in women's sports. Our government's lack of respect for the Constitution. They run it over like it doesn't exist. They're pushing socialism with these freebie handouts. Calling it stimulus. Yeah, stimulating inflation. What about debt cancellation? Robbing from someone else to pay off someone's debt. That's not, you know, they're not just forgiving debt. The debt's not being forgiven like God forgives our debts himself. The debt is not coming, that forgiveness isn't coming from the government. It's coming from us, from the taxpayers. It's immoral. But you know what they're doing? They're buying votes. And they're pushing socialism down the next generation's throat. I love free handouts, right? And we don't realize we're stepping into a mousetrap. Free cheese. In the words of Albert Moeller, we're committing social suicide right now. This is social suicide. We're in a historic turning point battle in our generation for the next generation. And I don't, I don't want to sound like a doomsayer, okay? And I, I could preach on this every week, and I don't intentionally because it's hard. It's hard on me. It's hard on you. But we have, we, it's not good to bear our, bury our heads in the sand all the time. I don't want to sound like a doomsayer. I know you came to hear something more positive this morning, and we'll get to it. But that's the reason for the message this morning. That's why we've chosen this theme for our church this year. Trusting God more and fearing less because of the world that we're living in. You just have to. You have to be intentional about this. Today the specific fear that I want to address is that of us as Christians living in an increasingly dark culture that's hostile to truth and and flat out opposed to it. What do we do? What do we do right now? How do we act? What, what are our survival steps? What's our STOP protocol principles for the Christian life? That's what we're going to look at from uh, Mark chapter 16 today, verses 13 through 20. It says, so when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say uh, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And so uh, where we've picked it up in Matthew this morning, we're jumping right into the middle of the book of Matthew. It's like jumping into the middle of the movie. You've missed the first half. And so uh, we like to do, we need to do what Howard Hendricks said is to uh, climb a contextual tree and get a little perspective here. Uh, Matthew's gospel, why was it written? It was written to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. Because uh, if you're trying to share Jesus with a Jewish person, 
and you're saying Jesus is the Messiah, the first question that's going to come to their mind is, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, where's his kingdom? Because to them, it was unthinkable that the Messiah would come and not bring his kingdom. So that's what they're looking for was, according to Old Testament prophecy, a literal kingdom uh, in Jerusalem reigning, Christ reigning from Jerusalem and, you know, overthrowing evil. And so that's what Matthew's answering. He, he reveals how the king came, the king offered the kingdom, the king was rejected, he returned to heaven, but he's coming back again with his kingdom someday. And you see this, uh, this play out in the book of Matthew. And so for now, we're to be restored to God's kingdom spiritually by faith, become heirs of the kingdom as we wait for the Son to come and bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So where we've picked up in Matthew, though, uh, Jesus has sufficiently proven his identity. He has proven himself to be the Messiah by his life and his ministry, by his, his works and his words, his sayings and his deeds, right? His teaching and his miracles have all proven him to clearly be indisputably the Messiah. And he did that mostly through his Galilean ministry up in the northern half of Israel. But now that's over. The Galilean ministry, it's done. He's been up there for years. And uh, now he's going to take his 12 disciples with him and he's going to go up north a little bit into um, Caesarea Philippi. This is as far north as you can go in the territory of Israel as they knew it, right? From Dan to Beersheba. Philip, Caesarea Philippi is only two miles from Dan. You're as far north as you can go. It's, it's pagan. It's Gentile territory. And um, he takes his disciples up there just to spend some alone time with him, to teach him a little bit more, to reveal a little bit more about who he is before he heads to the cross because from here up in the north it's all downhill well it's all uphill going to Jerusalem but it's all downhill from here we could say as he heads to the cross to die and so here's what he asks them he says who do the people say I am okay this is the turning point in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel he's proven himself to be the Messiah now who do people say that I am after all that I've said after all that I've done What's, what's everyone's conclusion about me? What's Israel's conclusion? What are the Jews saying? And they said, right, uh, oh, some say John the Baptist like Herod, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Um, you know, this is the response of people who had a general positive disposition towards Jesus. There was the, you know, the, the religious elite who said he was like Satan or Beelzebul, but uh, most of the people, just in general, thought he was just, you know, some sort of spiritual authority, some sort of prophet of some kind. And their conclusion reveals they don't understand who he really is. They don't understand this is, this is Emmanuel. This is God with us, God in the flesh having come down to us. This is Messiah. This is the hope of Israel. This is what we've been, we've been waiting for all this time. You know, and so they missed it. Done it did, Jesus said they missed the time of their visitation. They didn't understand the times. And then Jesus personalizes the question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Not who do the people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And this is a, a destiny-determining question that every single one of us, every soul that's ever lived has to answer this question, basically. Who do you say that I am? This will determine destinies here. It determines the nature of the gospel. If it's by grace. Because he had to be God in order to pay for man's sins, right? And therefore, it could be by grace. But who is Jesus? Is he an ordinary man? Is he a religious man? Is he just some good moral teacher? Is he a liar? Lord, lunatic, or liar? Or is he God himself having come into this world as a man to die for man's sins? Is he Messiah? Many people had their opinions. Many people have their opinions today. But many of them are wrong, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's answer needs to be our answer. He said this, you are the Christ. That Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. 
You are the Messiah. If Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? His first name's not Jesus and his last name Christ. You are Jesus Christ. You're the Messiah. Yeshua. You're Jesus. You're the one. You're our God. You're our Savior, right? The Messiah was to be God's predicted and long-awaited deliverer of Israel. He's the one they've been waiting for. And Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah is correct. And Jesus responds to him with these three different statements about Peter being blessed, Peter being a rock, and Peter being given some keys. So the first Petrine statement that we see today is that Peter is blessed by divine revelation. And that's why he's blessed. He's blessed because, you know, because the Father, Jesus says, has revealed Jesus' true identity to Peter. The Father is the one who gave him that revelation that Jesus is the Christ. Peter didn't didn't come up with, you know, he didn't come to know Jesus' identity through his own spiritual insight or human intellect, observations. I mean, it wasn't his own human effort. That's why he says it wasn't flesh and blood. This wasn't just your doing that you came to this conclusion. He said, God the Father revealed me to you. Blessed are everyone to whom the Father has revealed the true identity of Jesus Christ to. Blessed are you, Shadron Berean. Because you know who Jesus really is. It's, it takes a divine revelation. It takes a divine work of God in our hearts to understand who Jesus is. Do you see that there? That's something we've got to remember when it comes to living in a crazy dark world and when it comes to sharing Jesus with people, we have to depend on God working in their hearts to show them who Jesus is. We can't make anyone believe in Jesus, can we? We share the gospel, but what do we have to do when we're sharing the gospel? We have to trust God to work in their hearts, to open their hearts as we share the gospel, to help them see who Jesus really is is and so that became my first principle don't we don't when we're in this world we're trying to change the world for jesus christ we don't trust ourselves do we We don't trust in flesh and blood we trust in god to work in people's hearts to work in people's lives we don't depend on ourselves we depend on god i share the gospel because i want to see people get saved but i can't save anyone In my heart, as I'm sharing the gospel, I'm praying, God, will do a work in their hearts. God, reveal yourself to these people. We depend on Him. When you look around and you see the chaos and the foolishness going on today, remember, God is in control. That's another principle I've extended from this. Remember, God is in control. God's never up in heaven, guys, wringing His hands, wondering, what am I going to do? Oh, no. The world's out of control. Is He sweating bullets up there? Oh no, the foundations are crumbling. No, Psalm says, Psalm 2 says, he can look at all the world leaders, he can look at this, um, this group of elites in Silicon Valley that are you know, causing our nation to crumble with their influence, this oligarchy that's really running our country and the world. He'll look at them and laugh, Psalm 2 says. He can look at all the leaders in the world and, uh, and, and all these wicked rulers, the Joseph Stalins, the Putins, the Hitlers, the Bidens, the whoevers. He can look at every single ruler in this world, even if they're, they're wicked, and he, can, he looks at them like they're a little ant, and he laughs because he knows their judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. And that's what we've got to understand is that eventually Jesus Christ is going to come. And we've also got to understand, right, so history is actually heading somewhere, right? And in the last days, we should expect it to get worse. So you look at things going on, you say, wow, hastening the coming of the Lord. Secondly, God can use evil for good. Didn't, didn't Joseph learn that? Genesis 50, verse 20, I think it is. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So when you look at the evil going on in this world, think about all the different ways God's using it for good. I don't know how many people have come to know the Lord the past few years because they look around, they see something's wrong. Man is not inherently good. There's something wrong with man. 
And they're, they're looking around. They're looking for hope. And we get to be the ones to share Jesus with them and give them that kind of hope. Will they believe? I don't know. Some will. Some won't. But we can't let the naysayers stop us from faithfully planting and watering the seed of the gospel. We plant. Corinthians says we plant the seeds of the gospel. We water the seeds of the gospel. But who has to cause the growth? It's God. And we rest in that. We sow the seeds and we rest. God's the one who causes that seed to grow. But back to the text. And this is part of the sermon that I should probably have left alone. But (laughs) forgive me because I can't help myself. Uh, Peter's original name was Simon. And uh, his dad's name was John. So it was like Simon, son of John. John 142, you see that. Anyway, Jesus renames Peter. He renames him Peter. Oh, you should be called Peter. And so why does he call him Simon Barjona? Why does he go back to that name here all of a sudden? He calls him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Um, I didn't put too much effort into this, to be honest with you. And I I probably should have had, I wish I had more time. Uh, But uh, some think he's saying, bar, the word bar, Barjona, right? The bar means son. Like bar Jesus, son of Jesus. Bar Jonah means son of Jonah. Well, it's really close to John, to be honest, and some think it's just a reference, another reference for John because the names are so similar, but some think he actually meant son of Jonah for a reason. So if, if, he's, if he means son of John, it's emphasizing his humanity. You know, he didn't, it's divine revelation came to him. It wasn't just flesh and blood, right? So, but secondly, the context supports this. He's actually referring to him as the son of Jonah, as in Jonah the prophet. And so, uh, if, if, that's, if that's true, let's think about this, okay? Rabbinic liter- literature indicates that calling someone the son of, right, son of what, whoever, could be, doesn't, it doesn't have to refer to physical descendancy, like a, like a son of your father. You know, you could refer to uh, just having similar characteristics or similar, a similar classification, so, it could mean displaying the characteristics of or being a follower or disciple of. Remember, Jesus called Pharisees the son of the, the devil. Okay, if that's, if, so if this is the way Jesus is using this, how is Peter similar to Jonah? Well, Jonah, think about this. Jonah receives a divine assignment from God to be a prophetic voice to Gentiles at Nineveh goes to Joppa, okay, takes a ship, tries to flee the divine calling on his life, but eventually goes to Nineveh where he preaches and Gentiles get saved. Peter too, a prophetic voice for God, would be a prophetic voice for God, would receive an assignment from God through divine revelation. Remember the sheet full of unclean animals telling him they're coming down from heaven to earth three times and he says, go, eat, Peter, eat, because uh, it's clean, basically. And, and Peter, what does Peter do? Where does, actually, where does Peter receive that vision? At Joppa. And what does he say in response? No way. Right? By no means, Lord. And then what does he end up doing? He ends up going to the Gentiles at Caesarea Maritima and Gentiles get saved. You see the similarities there? And maybe I'm pushing that, you know, too far. But the similarities are just too uncanny. I think that's what he means by Barjona. Yeah, maybe it's a stretch. Maybe it's not. But it's also supported by the context. Because Peter is the one that God's going to use to open the door of salvation to the Jews, to the Samaritans who are half Gentile and half Jews, and then to the Gentiles. You see that? So this is, leads us to Petrine statement number two. Peter is given the keys of the kingdom to open the door of salvation. Peter's the one. I think that's what's meant by Peter being given uh, the keys to the kingdom. It doesn't mean he's standing at the pearly gates in heaven deciding who gets in, who gets out. You guys have seen the comics, right? Um, Peter has already used the keys. 
He's already used the keys in the book of Acts. God designated it for him to be the one who would preach on Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 Jews get saved and the church is born. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's in the future. The church is built. It starts with Peter there. Uh, then think about Philip. <clears throat> There's a little persecution down in Jerusalem. Peter, uh, or no, Philip, the apostles stay. Uh, a lot of the believers spread out, right? They're dispersed. Philip goes to Samaria. He starts preaching, and Samaritans, these half-Jew, half-Gentile people, start believing. But what don't they receive? They don't receive the Holy Spirit. They aren't born again. Why? Because Philip didn't have the keys. Peter had the keys. Who had to come from Jerusalem down to Samaria and lay hands on the Samaritans for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Who had to open the kingdom of God for them? Peter. John went with him. Peter and John. Now, when someone believes today, they receive the Spirit of God without question. Okay, Don't, uh, don't think that everybody has to have someone pray over them and have their hands laid on them in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, total, that's missing the context. That, that this was a unique moment. And the reason God did it was because there was so much division between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They called them dogs. And they had rival worship centers. Right? So the, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And, and, and God was saying, look, Samaritans, I'm doing something new. And you are not going to build your own little Samaritan denomination over here. Okay, you're going to be under the leadership of these Jewish apostles just like the rest of my church. And so they had to submit themselves to the apostolic authority. Uh, they were to be united under the authority of the apostles. And then as for the Gentiles, Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, he gets saved. Remember this? Paul gets saved, but before Paul goes out on mission to the Gentiles, what, is, what has to happen? Acts chapter 10. God has to send Peter to Cornelius' house to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles before Paul goes out on his missionary journey. So Peter opens these doors of salvation and it's never shut and he does it through his preaching. In Matthew 23, 13, Jesus cries, Woe unto the Pharisees. Why, 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 why woe to the Pharisees? Several reasons, but one of them, Jesus says, is for shutting the doors of the kingdom of heaven on people so that they couldn't enter. They're keeping people from being saved and entering the kingdom of heaven. Peter, by contrast, was to open the way for all people to come in by grace through faith in Christ. The keys are also somewhat associated with binding and loosening. Did you see that in verse uh, 18? He'll be responsible to bind and to loosen. And that, the keys go hand in hand with this because uh, it involves apostolic authority that no one has today. Okay? Only the apostles have this sort of authority to bind and loosen. Bind and loosen doesn't mean like the Roman Catholic Church purports that you know Peter's the first pope and all the successors of Peter have some sort of infallibility and the words they say are the, you know, like... It's like the commands of God, something like that. Uh, they have the, for, for, you know, the ability to forgive and not forgive sins. I mean, that's your, they're, they're a concept of the Pope. But um, keys do have to do with authority, but not in that sense. It's apostolic authority. Peter, along with the other Spirit-inspired apostles, were going to exercise apostolic authority in their unique role of laying the foundation for the church. If you're a Christian, you operate under the authority of Jesus' apostles. And we, how do we know what the apostles... Is it, what, how do we know the apostles' instruction? Well, it's all right here, right? So, all I do is try to pass on to us what the apostles taught. We're under apostolic authority, under apostolic teaching. We're just reading the instruction they wrote in the Word of God. And think about this. Think about this. This, is, this binding and loosening has to be the, the greatest responsibility and difficulty for these men going forward because they've got to now transition people from this old covenant, the law of Moses, to the new covenant of grace. 
I mean, you talk about going through that transition. That was hard on people. That's why Jesus said, you know, I put new, you put new wine into new wine skins. Because if you try to put it into old wine skins, they'll burst. This is quite the transition. I mean, they have to transition from a sacrificial system in a temple to, well, we're just going to take communion now. Right? <laughs> no more sacrifices needed. Let's get baptized and take communion. I mean, it's quite a transition, right? So they had to loosen a lot of different things, and they had to start binding new things. Loosen some of the dietary laws. They were responsible to loosen that. Let no one be your judge in respect to a new moon or a Sabbath or a festival or diet or whatever. Loosen that, and then bind what? Bind Jew and Gentile together for table fellowship. What a responsibility. What a difficulty. They're fighting this sort of Jew and Gentile division until they die. They're binding and loosening. That's their apostolic authority and responsibility. And uh, one more thing. They had to organize uh, this transition. In, in, this, in organizing this transition, what did God give them? To authenticate them as apostles. Miracles. Remember that? This is why we see so many miracles in the book of Acts and the New Testament while the apostles are still kicking on this planet, right? Okay, the miracles were given, these ever on command, right? Miracles were given, the Bible says, the, the miracles of apostles were given to confirm the word of the Lord which they preached. So imagine if everybody had some sort of like on-command miracles today where they just went around healing everybody. You'd start to treat them differently, wouldn't you? Maybe like an apostle. So thank God a lot of people don't have some sort of like apostolic authority or these miracles because we'd start treating them differently like that. So that's why they had that. Okay, The miracles testified to the words that they were preaching. So um, confirmed their God-given ministry to bind and to loosen. But uh, let's look at Petrine's statement number three. Peter's testimony is the rock that the church is built on. By the way, can God still heal today? Can he still do miracles? Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, there are no apostles. Many commentators have noted, though, that, that Jesus used two different words here for rock in verse 18. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, which means like a small or pebble type of rock, a little stone, and upon this rock, Petra, which means bedrock or massive rock, foundation rock, um, I will build my church. And so there's been a lot of ink spilled over the identification of what is this rock that he's going to build on. Is the rock Peter? Is the rock Christ? Is the rock Peter's confession? And the Roman Catholic Church, in its pursuit to be the self-proclaimed one true church, uh, understands Peter to be the rock in, in that he's the first pope. And so, you know, there's apostolic succession, which is a conundrum. That doesn't make any sense at all. There is no apostolic succession. So... Uh, but they would say Peter's the first pope and all the popes after him have this same sort of authority. They have the keys to the kingdom. Um, not what he's saying here. In reaction to the RC position, though, the Roman Catholic position, is the idea that the Peter's testimony that Jesus is the Christ is the rock. So we go from saying Peter's the rock to saying, no, Peter has nothing to do with it. It's Peter's testimony that's the rock that the church is built on. But... Um, I think based on what we see in the book of Acts, as history plays out, church history plays out, I think we have to understand that Peter and his testimony go together here. Because we see God do both. I think Jesus is simply saying to Peter that his testimony is the big foundational rock that the church is going to be built on, but, it, but, it, but it, it's going to be built through Peter. So Peter, in a sense, with his testimony, is going to be the rock. And Peter is clearly given a foundational role uh, in the founding and expansion of the church during his lifetime. 
through his use of the keys given to him. It begins with him, but it doesn't necessarily depend on him as some infallible pope in that sort of sense. I mean, we can go to one extreme or the other. But um, this interpretation I'm giving you is in line with the biblical setting. I mean, how the story plays out in Acts, and what's the best interpreter of Scripture? Scripture. So, anyway, this is an encouragement to us that God would use Peter. You know why? Because Peter was not some perfect, infallible pope. (laughs) He wasn't some infallible person. You have to think. This is my think principle today. God uses imperfect people. Nothing personal, but the fact that Jesus used Peter for such an awesome task is mesmerizing. Because Peter was kind of a knucklehead. Uh, Peter lived with his foot in his mouth. He denied Jesus three times. Um, after this, uh, up in Antioch, after the gospel was spread, even up to Syria and Antioch, he's going to fail to misrepresent. He's going to misrepresent the gospel by some sort of segregation between Jews and Gentiles. He starts to take sides, and he starts to side with the Judaizers, the Jews. And Paul has to rebuke this infallible pope. Okay, <laughs> I'm being you know, sarcastic here. Lord, help me. But I just grew up Catholic. That's why I'm just so, I don't know, sarcastic about it. So, have mercy. Um, In the next paragraph, Jesus is going to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. So, one paragraph he's saying, you're blessed, Peter. In the next paragraph he's saying, get behind me, Satan, because Peter, in trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross, is aligning himself with the will of Satan. Satan, in his temptations of Jesus, tried to get Jesus to skip the cross. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world now. And so, Peter's name means rock, but I don't necessarily think it, think it was because Peter was actually a rock. Like, that didn't necessarily define who he was. I think... Peter thought he was a rock. He's, I'm the rock of the group. I'm the spokesman of the group, you know. But he wasn't a rock. He wasn't a rock until Jesus humbled him, until his failure, until he denies Jesus three times. And after his humbling experience, Jesus says, Peter, I need you to be the rock now. Peter, are you going to feed my sheep? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know I do. You know I do. You know I do. Then feed my sheep. Three times he has to tell Peter, feed my sheep. I need you to be a rock for my people. I need you to teach my sheep. I need you to feed them. And my point being is that Jesus doesn't use perfectly cut stones when he goes to build his church. Peter himself in 1 Peter, I think it is, or 2 Peter, talks about how each, every single one of us are like living stones. But we're not perfectly little cut bricks. We're stones that are living were formed by God. You know, in the Old Testament, God would say, build an altar out of uncut stones. There's some incredible imagery there. God doesn't produce cookie-cutter stones. We're all a little different, intentionally. And when it comes to serving the Lord, we let fear and, I think, false humility creep into our lives. And keep us from serving the Lord. Because we're not perfect, right? I've got these flaws. I've got these weaknesses. How could God ever use me? What will people think of me if I share Jesus? If I live for Jesus? What if I I fail? What if I screw up? These are questions I come up with every Sunday as to not preach. To not to preach. What if I say something stupid? What if I put my foot in my mouth like Peter? I do this all the time. I can talk myself out of preaching pretty fast. How could God use me? Those are little subtle fears that you deal with on occasion. And you know what? It's nonsense. Because the good news is, Jesus could use even Peter, this one, uh, Peter, I mean, the one through whom Jesus founded the church. He screwed up big time. And God still used him to found the church. He was not a perfect person. Jesus doesn't require perfect individuals. In fact, There's a reason we're not perfect, because we have weaknesses. We have weaknesses. Jesus says, for that reason, that's where my power is actually going to shine the most. My grace is perfected in weaknesses. He uses our weaknesses to build His church. 
to make it clear that it's not us doing it, but it's Him. He will build His church. We're just privileged to be a part of it. So don't let fear of failure, fear of inadequacy stop you from being part of God's building program. Ask Him to use your weaknesses. Now, here's where it gets fun for me today. This is We're turning gears here. If you really want to feel uh, the full force of what Jesus says when He says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. You need to understand where Jesus and his disciples are when he says this. This is going to like this is going to pack the put the punch in this sermon. Uh, just understanding the context. There are few actual locations or places in scripture like Caesarea Philippi that play such a significant role in our understanding of the biblical text. Okay? First Look at this. Caesarea Philippi is up in the northern extremities of Jewish territory and predominantly Gentile, dark Gentile territory. Okay, it's up there at the base of Mount Hermon, the highest peak in the Promised Land where the Jordan River starts. This, is, this place is a place of incredible beauty, natural beauty. Have any of you been here? Are you going there in October? Awesome. I'm so happy for you. Um, I'm jealous. Uh, but even when it's dry, you know, and, and brown down here by the Sea of Galilee, look at this lush, fertile basin there. And you go up 1,700 feet, and it's just gorgeous. It becomes very green and very lush and well-watered. And, and uh, there's a, a massive uh, cliff face here with a deep cave going into the earth and at the time uh, when Jesus and his disciples are there the river actually came out of this cave out of the mouth of this this cave right now this river kind of comes out oh somewhere there was like an earthquake a hundred years ago and since then the seismic activity this water comes out now to the bottom and the right of the cave but back in Jesus' day it came actually out of the mouth of it and uh, this is a major tributary of the Jordan River. But uh, Joseph Decephus described this cave as a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. It contains a mighty quantity of water which is immovable. Josephus is a historian, by the way, who wrote back then. And he says, when anybody lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. They can't find the bottom of this cave. And because this area is so uh, lush and because of the, the water source that comes out of it, uh, it be naturally became a place of idol worship to fertility gods, like false fertility gods. Wherever there's water coming out of a cave, that's, that's, what, that's what would happen. And uh, this place has a long history of being a dark, wicked place. Before the conquest of the land by Israel, it was home to Canaanite uh, Baal worship. Baal worship, which involved child sacrifice. After the conquest, after Israel's wandering, they took over the promised land. Uh, the city of Dan, tribe of Dan, settled here about two miles away from this cave. And uh, another beautiful place that you want to go if you visit Israel. Um, they were the, this, 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 this tribe up here uh, settled right here, and it's only two miles. And they were the first tribe to introduce idol worship. Uh, after the kingdom um, split after Solomon to Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Jeroboam introduced golden calf worship because he, was, he didn't want his people going down to Jerusalem to worship. And so he set up two golden calves in Israel. Remember when it split, southern Israel was called Judah, northern Israel was called Israel with the ten tribes and the two tribes. Well, Jeroboam sets up two golden calves, one at the south end of Israel, one at the north end of Israel, to keep people from going to Jerusalem so they wouldn't, uh, uh, anyway, they wouldn't defect on him, basically. And then, uh, so that's part of the history. Now, after the conquest of Alexander the Great and the, the Greek culture uh, spreading, which we call the, uh, the Hellenistic period, there was a, the large cave at the site became a place of worship to this Greek god Pan. Uh, from the 3rd century uh, to the 5th century A.D., 3rd century B.C., so for like 800 years, there's this pan worship going on here. 
And the site became called Peneus. And uh, in 63 BC, when we enter the Roman era, uh, Rome conquered this area and eventually called it Caesarea Paneus. So it's honoring Caesarea and the Greek god Pan. And then uh, Herod, uh, sorry, Herod the Great dies, Philip the Tetrarch takes over, and now it's called Caesarea Philippi. So now it's honoring both Caesar, Augustus, and Philip the Tetrarch. And uh, eventually Islam makes a conquest of this area, right? And uh, the name morphs to, from Paneus to Banias, basically Banias. Uh, it's named after the springs there, the watery springs. Uh, Islam didn't allow the whole false god and that sort of stuff to keep going on. But uh, during the time of Jesus, there were temples here to Caesar Augustus, right? So emperor worship, we're worshiping the emperor, emperor and um, the Greek god Zeus, and pan worship. Again, pan worship seemed to uh, dominate this site. And you can see uh, even some little niches uh, carved into the side of the rock where they would have put little statues of Pan and, and they would have worshipped there. The massive cave that descended into the, the earth was called the Grotto of Pan and regarded by pagans as a gateway to the underworld, a gateway to Hades. So the gates of Hades won't overcome the church, right? This was literally considered the gates to the underworld, this cave, because you couldn't get to the depths of it. Uh, they couldn't fathom the depths of it. And so you've probably seen pictures of Pan. He's a dancing goat man. Um, he has the legs and horns of a goat, the torso and arms of a man, uh, and he dances and he plays the flute or the panpipes and he chased women around, women spirits. He's also associated with all things related to Wild times, party music, fertility. Okay. Um, people would come here and worship seeking the prosperity of their land, their crops, their businesses, maybe the womb. Uh, they would come here and offer pan, some sort of offerings, in order to be blessed, material, right? Material prosperity. Some actually would might take their children and throw them into the depths of that watery cave as a child sacrifice. And uh, what went on here, to be honest with you, between worshipers and goats was unspeakable. I can't even talk about it. It's just so disgusting and so wicked. But get this, here's the other thing he was known for. He was associated with fear. The God of fear and panic. Oh, did you hear that? Pan what? Panic. Panic. You see his name in it? Isn't that interesting? Our word panic comes from the god Pan who caused humans to flee his forest in unreasoning fear. When people were, the story is when people were coming through this, uh, this guy's forest, Pan's forest, he would, he'd hear him walking down the trail and he'd get behind some bushes and he'd, he'd rustle those bushes a little bit. And they'd kind of start to, you know, get a little scared, right? And then he'd, he'd run ahead of them down the trail and they walk by again, he'd shake it a little harder. And then they'd get really, they'd start to get even more scared. So he'd go even further. And then he'd start to stomp his hooves a little bit. And, and, and it says people would just start running. They were so freaked out, they just ran out of his forest. And he got a kick out of it. He got his joy out of making people fearful, making people panic. Panic is a word that modifies the word fear. It's called panic fear. That's how Josephus used it. Panic fear. So, what kind of spirit do you really think was behind this gross, wild party, child-sacrificing, materialistic God who made people fear for fun? He just did it for fun. Who do you think is really behind this false God? Is it a coincidence that the satanic church chooses a half-goat man to be their emblem? Is it a coincidence that unbelievers are called goats on Judgment Day? How ironic now to say panic is your greatest enemy. 
dawned on me last night, about 9 o'clock. Who do you think is causing the panic in the world today? It's not from God. So now that you know what's really going on here, let's put, put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. You're a Jew. You want nothing to do with this place. You see what's going on here, right? You don't want anything to do with it. It's incredibly wicked, unspeakably wicked. And you're standing by this massive rock face and Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. That is powerful. Nothing is going to stop it. Reminds us of the church at Pergamum in Revelation where Jesus built his church. You know where you know what he said about Pergamum? He said that's where Satan's throne is at the time. He built his church where Satan's throne is. So what Jesus says here actually comes true, doesn't it? It's prophetic. He'll build his church right where Satan's throne is. He don't care. Nothing's gonna stop it. Can Jesus build his church in our Increasingly dark culture. That's the point I want to make today. What do you think of when you think of gates? Gates. Gates are for fortresses, right? Gates are, can be big. They can be powerful looking. Some of them were wood back then. They were overlaid with bronze. They were very powerful looking, but, and they were strong. And no doubt the gates of Hades are strong to keep people in. No man can come out of those gates on his own strength. But no one takes gates with them to war. And so they're a defense mechanism. Gates are a defense mechanism. The picture Jesus is showing us is him and his church on the offensive. Jesus and his imperfect church on the offensive, banging down the gates of darkness and death that have organized themselves against the church. You see any dark powers organizing themselves against us today? Communists use force, lethal force. Today we see legislative force organizing themselves against us. But we're on the offensive. And we're storming the gates of hell. And the gates of hell ain't going to overpower the church. Jesus is calling these Jewish apostles and calling us to penetrate the darkest of places with the light of the gospel. Places, to be quite honest, we're, not frank, frank, we're frankly just not comfortable going to. It's so dark. And the promise is that he's going to build his church unstoppable so let's let's observe now the church on the offensive the church is on to be on the offensive we're not holed up somewhere in our little church building cowering retreating we're to be engaged like ed talked about we're to be involved in our culture Involved in politics, involved in our schools, involved in our society, influencing the world for Christ with the salt and the light of the truth and the gospel. What does Satan want? The exact opposite. He wants us to fear. He wants us to be on the defensive. To, he wants us to, to blend in with the world, to be afraid to speak the truth, to be afraid to live the truth, because he knows fear can make us follow culture rather than follow Christ. We say amen to that, but we all shut down, and we're all paralyzed by fear at times. Fear can be really subtle. Think about how many times you've not spoken up for Christ or for the truth when you had the chance because you didn't want to be judged by your friends and your coworkers. You didn't want them to treat you differently. That was fear that caused that. It was subtle, but it was fear. What do they think of me? What will they think of me? What will they say about me? What will happen to me? Will I lose my job? Will I be demoted? What, 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 what? It's fear keeping us from standing for the faith and standing for the truth. But I want to encourage you in that while it's more tempting to blend in than ever, it's also easier to stand out and make a difference. The darker the dark, the brighter the bright. So, 
First Peter 3, he says, Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you with gentleness and respect. Be ready. Be ready. Don't be fearful. Be ready. Now is not the time to be silent. It's a time to stand. It's a historic moment that we're living in. Someone's going to run your libraries and your schools. Someone's going to run the media. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be, we're going to step in and say something, or are you just going to let it take the next generation out, you know? It's time for action, guys. It's time for action. The last part, P, is plan. To live in light of our eternal destination. Plan to live in light of your eternal destination. When you're lost, what do you do? First thing you do, maybe you pray, right? (laughs) But practically, you get a map. You get a map. You look for the destination. Where are you trying to go? And as Christians, we're living in a culture where we're feeling some dysphoria and prone to fear. When we're, when, we're, when we're living with this dysphoria and we're prone to fear, we need to get out the map and look at where we're going and live each moment in light of eternal glory. Because when you do that, it doesn't make much sense anymore to stay silent. What are they going to do to you? Take your life? Make fun of you? Remember what Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You live now in light of eternity. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, Verse 24 here. This is Jesus' argument. This isn't just me coming up with this point here. Jesus actually goes into this in Matthew 16. He says, Live now in light of the future. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You want to save your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And yet forfeits his soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come. And here's the eschatological argument. Man is, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. Judgment and reward based on how we lived in this life. And don't take that to mean that we were saved by works. We're not saved by grace through faith in Christ. But how we live in this life does affect our eternal rewards, right? To let fear keep us from being faithful disciples now is exchanging the next world for this one. And that is a poor exchange. I want to encourage you as you go about your week this week, and I'll be praying for every single one of you, just to be more aware of the fear that's going on in your heart. It's not from God. It comes with the fall, I know, and we're all fearful sheep. It's the nature of sheep. Be more aware of it. Rebuke it. And live for Jesus Christ no matter what. Stand for your faith. Share your faith. Put your faith into action. And pray for opportunity this week to share Jesus, to share the truth without fear. Lord, thank you so much for the hope of eternity and that we as your people, we are always on the right side of history. Help us, Lord, when we're tempted to fear and be intimidated by what people think of us to live for Christ anyway and to speak for Christ and to live for that which is to come. Make us bold uh, witnesses like the Apostle Paul who could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Lord, we thank you that your church does not depend on us, fickle, fearful us. It depends on you. You will build your church. You will
use us. You'll use even our, our weaknesses like precious living stones in your design. Lord, give us the grace we need um, as we seek to do just that this week and with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.